The opportunity that's been given to each of us this evening is certainly a tremendous one. After a number of things and ideas that we each have the opportunity to see on each Lord's Day, to be able to assemble and to gather is certainly one of the highlights not only of that day, but yea, of the entire week per se. It is the case tonight as we always are thankful and happy for the opportunity that's been given to us, not only as the membership at Pippin, but also as the host of visitors who are with us. We're always hopeful that we each will be strengthened and helped in our sojourn here upon this earth. As you may have noted there in the bulletin, the lesson for tonight is entitled Nebuchadnezzar's Other Dream. It is the case, given that in the reading that Brother Cale read just a moment ago, we'll revisit at least portions of the book of Daniel this evening, and in so doing, to not only look at one of the dreams found in that noble book, but also to see if we can't make some application that's very helpful and very prompting to each of us today. It is for those reasons that these introductory thoughts certainly seem in order. The book of Daniel, as we each recognize, is the last of the major prophets of the Old Testament. But in that book are so many matters that are not only intense, but they're exceedingly captivating as we read through the book. We encounter dreams and very amazing dreams. We find individuals in lion's dens, in fiery furnaces. We find the revelation of matters that from that point in time were future history, revealed thoroughly, exactly, and completely. And yet as all that unfolds, we nonetheless find in it some pertinent and challenging matters, certainly for you and for me today. One of the key figures in that book is a king named Nebuchadnezzar. One of those very long names in the Old Testament, and we readily appreciate that he was the king of Babylon at that particular time. But oh, what a source of information he was, because these things that happened to him can be very useful as you and I apply the lessons from it to our lives today. It is for that reason that perhaps we can begin as follows. First of all, I made note that the title of the lesson was Nebuchadnezzar's Other Dream. In the book of Daniel, his principal dream, or the one that occurred in chapter 2, is likely the one that's better known. It was the case that with regard to that image, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed and he saw this image that had a head of gold, it had an upper midsection of silver, it had a midsection of brass, and then legs of iron, and finally, feet partly mixed of iron and clay. And as that dream was interpreted... And as the message was sent forth, it truly recognized the passing of time inasmuch as that represented various and sundry sequential kingdoms that would rule over various parts of the earth. But again, our subject tonight is the other dream. Let me invite you to note the following. Babylon at this time was a powerful kingdom. In fact, she ruled over the known world for all practical purposes. She was mighty, she was cruel, she was tremendous, and the one that ruled over her as king and monarch was none other than Nebuchadnezzar. As you can well imagine, he himself was exceedingly wealthy. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, indicates that he in fact had a statue erected that was to his deification and was to his worship. When they heard the music play, all were to fall down and bow before that image. Not only was he wealthy, he was very prideful. He wished to be lifted up and honored by those of the human family as the great monarch and royal and regal ruler over the nation of Babylon. As you can well imagine, 
He did in chapter 3 come face to face with the reality of the God of heaven. For he had three cast into the fiery furnace, but they weren't burned up and they weren't consumed. And he himself came to appreciate that there was another in that place. As you give thought to that in the aftermath of it, it was this same Nebuchadnezzar who gave homage to the God of heaven and said, all need to give worship to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. However, it seems as if he didn't retain that lesson nearly as long as one might have thought. In fact, as you come to chapter number 4, God visited this man with another dream. This dream was not about future empires and future kingdoms. This dream was not about a message that was specifically for the greatness of world empires. This second dream was for his benefit. It was for him to learn a valiant and valuable lesson, and it was for him to make some desperate changes so that some terrible things would not happen to him. Because of all of that, let's take a brief look about some of the features of that dream. In Daniel, the fourth chapter, verses 8 through 18, we have Nebuchadnezzar revealing the details and specifics of this dream because Daniel was called and he was asked... In fact, he was even demanded to interpret it, but this was the dream. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream in which he saw a tremendous tree. This was no ordinary tree, you see. This tree was such that its boughs stretched forward. Its height was virtually as if it reached into heaven. As its boughs stretched forward and its limbs, in fact, were so mighty. We even appreciate that the animals of the field would come and find shelter beneath this tree. The birds of the air would nest and find lodging within its branches and boughs. We also can well appreciate that this tree had tremendous fruit. It bore of such some tremendous and such bountiful fruit that it was even noted in the character of that dream. All the while, you can well imagine that it was a rather startling and shocking thing when in the dream Nebuchadnezzar heard an ensign from heaven, a watcher who gave the order, cut the tree down. Leave neither limb, leave no leaves, wipe all of it out except the stump. Let the stump remain intact and leave it. Needless to say, as these orders in the dream were given, it was a bothersome thing to Nebuchadnezzar. And he well appreciated that there was some meaning attached to it. He merely wondered what that meaning was. As the dream ended, we noticed that that stump began to grow again. And it again resulted in another rather bountiful and large standing tree. But all the while, the meaning thereof was hidden from Nebuchadnezzar until Daniel revealed it. When Daniel revealed the dream, he also very quickly made note that it was the God of heaven who revealed it. And the details and the specifics were as follows. Nebuchadnezzar, you are the tree. Here was an absolute and direct inference to the truth that Nebuchadnezzar was representative of the tree in that dream. As such, at that time in his career and at that time in his reign, Nebuchadnezzar was a powerful ruler. Babylon was strong and mighty and no one had been able to defeat them. No one had been able even to raise a particular battle against them. That's how strong at that time that they had been. But as you can well imagine, in that dream, the order was given to cut down the tree. 
that indicated the following, that Nebuchadnezzar, though at this time you are mighty and you are great, however, if things do not change and if your perspective is not correctly aligned with that which is the will of God, you will be cut down. Despite your greatness, despite the fact you have armies at your disposal, despite the fact that there are multitudes of people that answer to you, you will be cut down. In fact, as you can well appreciate, that cutting down would be described in the following language and words. You will be driven from men. You will live as an animal for seven times over. And not only that, you will even find that as the dew of heaven will wet you, and as you strive to live in this way, it would seem in the matter of inhumanity, it will take place until you learn this lesson. Till that there, you learn that there is a God in heaven and that He reigns over all things and that He does whatsoever He will with the matters of the human family and that it is your duty, Nebuchadnezzar, to glorify and honor Him. You see, there was a lesson at this point in Nebuchadnezzar's life that he had failed to appreciate. Might we in passing take note of what that was? I hinted just a bit earlier in Daniel 3.1 that he had this image erected. It stood nine feet tall. It was intended that all would give direct glorification and deification of it. He was virtually to be worshipped as a god. At this point, we each can take careful note, there is no human that has the right, the prerogative, or the perspective to take that kind of activity upon himself. We remember there was another time in the Word of God when an individual strove to lift himself up in that fashion. As we give thought to that, we'll return to it a bit later in the lesson. But if you wish to be thinking about it in the recesses of your mind, it shall come from the book of Esther. For right now, as we come near the close of that, one of the final lessons that Nebuchadnezzar was to glean was this one. Namely, the fact that the stump was to remain was a guarantee from the God of heaven that the surety and sureness of your kingdom shall remain and that you will, in fact, have your understanding to return to you after these periods of years of difficulty and you will again understand that there is a God of heaven. With regard to all those matters and the intensity of this dream, it might, in fairness come to us to notice that this was to be a very strong message and a very strong lesson to this man named Nebuchadnezzar. Let's see how the story unfolded. If we push forward 12 months, precisely one year, we find that these matters that were in fact revealed in this dream to Nebuchadnezzar did come to pass exactly as the God of heaven had revealed it through Daniel. In fact, here are just a few of the details. Again, at that time, even again one year later, Nebuchadnezzar was still in the height of his ascendancy. He was still in the power and majesty of his reign. Needless to say, that didn't stop the following. You'll notice that there was a voice that he heard from heaven. This message came directly and explicitly to him. It wasn't intended for others at that time. The voice came to heaven and here's what it said. The kingdom is departed from thee. Despite the position he occupied, he was the one to whom every person in the kingdom answered. He was the one who had the royal decree to 
enact the laws and legislation. And despite that fact, he heard a voice from heaven directly that confirmed to him the kingdom has departed from you. As you'll notice in the verses that followed, he did proceed to live for seven long years as an animal of the field. And not just any animal, but rather as an ox, as a cow, if you please. This man lived for that period of time. The Scriptures go on and reveal to us that hair grew in large numbers upon him. His fingernails grew long like those, if you please, almost like a bird. In addition to that, the characteristics of the scales that grew upon his skin made one think about the nature of an actual beast. And yet he had been a man not many years earlier. As you can well appreciate beyond that, he ate grass. We understand that is not a typical diet for a human being. And yet for this period of time, he behaved as, ate as, lived as, dwelt as an animal of the field. Furthermore, you might appreciate the great tree that he had seen in the dream had indeed been cut. Our God is able to do that which is His bidding and that which is His will. Here was a mighty man, and yet he had no answer to hold off and avoid the edict and the verdict and the judgment of the God of heaven. What's more, you'll notice near the bottom, there was a time eventually after that period of years when his reason did return to him. And as it did, he again ascended the royal throne and reigned again as king. I would submit that each of us can give some rather interesting thought to the scene of events revealed about Nebuchadnezzar. It may well be that in light of those things, we can imagine there have been some through the years who have asserted, this is just a myth. No human being ever lived like this. There have been some who have said, this is a story. It is a well-written, well-founded story, but in reality it did not actually happen to this man. Nobody's going to live like that. No person is going to proceed to dwell, to live and behave like an animal of the field. I would suppose that at least in answer to that, we should think critically and somewhat carefully about these events. Was this a myth or did this actually happen? Here are some thoughts that it seems to me are at least worthy of our consideration. You'll notice rather immediately that in it we encounter the following. Again, there was a voice. And I would invite you to notice verses 30 and 31 of Daniel chapter 4. <clears throat> it says, The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the midst of my power and for the honor of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. There is the direct claim of the word of God that this was a voice from heaven that revealed this information and that it was to happen by decree and judgment of the God of heaven. In light of that, might I ask us to notice that if we have consideration of and if we have belief in the various and sundry miracles found in the Word of God, why should we question this one? This man, Nebuchadnezzar, did in fact suffer these things. This wasn't a myth. It wasn't merely a story or a fable. This actually happened. Consider the following with me. 
There is a disease that appears to afflict various, and thankfully it would seem, relatively few members of the human family. But there is a disease that will cause one to behave somewhat like this. This disease is referenced by those in the medical field as insania zoanthropica. There are those in mental asylums around the world this day and time who are afflicted with something that will lead one to behave in a way not unlike this. The reason and understanding departs and this person begins to believe that he or she is an animal and will conduct themselves along that line if they're not restrained, if they're not by some means constrained to dwell otherwise. I'm certainly not saying that God specifically afflicted this man with this disease by that name. God could have done whatever He wished. But it could certainly be the case that He caused a very strong infliction of this disease to come upon Him and that the matters resulted in His dwelling in that way for the protracted period of time that God decreed. Our God certainly could have done that. In light of those comments you might notice, there was a rather direct point that Nebuchadnezzar was to learn. Imagine what it would have been like to hear this voice from heaven and then almost instantly to begin to dwell like an animal. Out in the field with the dew and the coolness of the evening falling upon you, eating grass in the almost inhumane way. This man endured that. He experienced it. I suppose as we will come a bit later in the lesson to hear his thoughts after this ended, we should take great heed to the lesson he learned because it could be a very notable one for us as well. As you give thought to those things, let's look at then some lessons that Nebuchadnezzar should have learned and things that you and I might be able to learn as well. We read just a moment ago in verses 30 and 31 of Daniel chapter 4. And as we read in those verses, we again notice where Nebuchadnezzar said that I have built this great house of the kingdom. I have been the one responsible for the grandeur of Babylon, the majesty of Babylon, all that things are that are enjoyed by the people of the nation. All the while, Nebuchadnezzar missed one vital and great point. He seemed to fail completely to understand that the God of heaven was the one that must be acknowledged as the giver of all blessings. It wasn't Nebuchadnezzar by his hand that made this happen. It was the blessing of the great God of heaven that allowed him to be a part of enjoying it. Isn't it true that that kind of lesson can be exceedingly meaningful for each of us today? Our nation, it seems in part, can be so tempted to forget that very idea. We live in a land that is so bountifully blessed materially. Our tables are full. Our houses are warm. In most instances, at least, we have jobs that pay fairly well. And we have access to so many blessings of a physical character. And if we aren't careful as a nation, and even as an individual, it would be so easy to think that just like Nebuchadnezzar, I, my, my hands have done this. It is I, by hard work, six and seven days a week, that I am able to have made this happen. May we always be mindful that is a dangerous position to consider. There was a man in Luke the 12th chapter who felt that way. His crops had brought forth so abundantly 
they had brought forth so bountifully that his perspective was this, I will pull down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. I'll say to my soul, soul, take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. For thou hast many goods laid up for many years. Isn't it true that there are times that those kind of words almost seem to be the verbatim ones that many in our land would like to enjoy? I've got a retirement laid up to carry me for 25, 30, 35 years. I'm going to take it easy, vacation and enjoy it all because I have earned it and I deserve it. I have worked for many years and have accomplished it. That sounds a lot like that rich man of Luke the 12th chapter. But didn't God also say, This night thy soul shall be required of thee, and then who shall these things be which thou hast provided? Doesn't it point us back to the similarity of the scene of Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar failed to realize it was the God of heaven that had blessed Babylon the way he had. And it was the God of heaven who allowed the tranquility and serenity and peacefulness of the kingdom to be enjoyed. And it was the God of heaven who also would cause that kingdom to crumble. Thus, these lessons come before us. In James 1 verse 17, the opening stands of the book of James. On that occasion, we learn that every good gift and every perfect gift cometh from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. It's interesting, isn't it, to consider the context in which that statement is found. Right before it, we notice that the statement was made that we should understand, beginning in verse 13, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth error. We notice it in the very next verse, Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. That perhaps has been a common flaw for much of the human family. It seems Adam and Eve forgot that point. We well remember those of Noah's day had forgotten it. Those of Abraham's day had forgotten it. Those of Moses' day had forgotten it. Those of Jesus' day had missed it. And isn't it still quite often common that the human family misses it? We live in a land, though blessed it is, how many today have given little, if any, thought to matters religious? They've sat in front of a television and watched a ball game. They may have even gone to Nashville or some other place and literally stood there and watched it. Maybe they went fishing. Maybe they went golfing. But I ask the question, how many never even thought about the Bible, the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God of heaven, or any of the blessings that they enjoy all week long due to His bountiful and mighty hand. You see, Nebuchadnezzar faced seven years of grave difficulty because he did not acknowledge God. I wonder if there would, of course, be a difficulty with us. We know that come the day of judgment, if we haven't acknowledged Him, He at that point will not acknowledge us. Jesus stated in Mark 8, verses 36, 7, and 8, he said, if you deny me, I will also deny you. That surely must be one of the most frightening considerations to their stand before the august presence of the judgment bar of God and hear Christ say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. 
and off into outer darkness, one shall be thus forced to go. If only Nebuchadnezzar had acknowledged God and understood that God was the source of his blessings. Perhaps another passage would be Psalm 100, verse 3. There in the midst of that little six-verse psalm, we find a statement about the nature that you and I are the sheep of His pasture, and we should acknowledge Him and give understanding to the character of all that is His. Beyond that, in Matthew 6, verses 24 to 34, we notice that there even Jesus addressed points like that in that sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. There was a strong temptation in that day, and it remains in ours. Beginning in verse 24, No man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other. He'll cling to the one, despise the other. You cannot serve God in mammon. That word mammon, you see, comes from an Arabic word that has relation to money, to wealth. There was a temptation then, just as there is now, to bow before the God of money, wealth, prosperity. You'll notice Jesus said you cannot serve both of them simultaneously. May you and I in wisdom recognize that Nebuchadnezzar made a fatal flaw. He did not acknowledge the God of heaven. And for that he was punished for seven years to live like a beast of the field. And that he did. But you'll notice even beyond that, we come to see another matter of the error that he made. Not only did he not acknowledge God, he elevated himself. It's not that he merely elevated somebody else. He lifted himself up. He exalted himself to that position of worship in the sight of others. And as such, that too is worthy of the condemnation from the Word of God. He elevated himself even above God. The Bible addresses that very matter because it is again so, so very tempting. Consider with me just a few of these. What was it that the Pharaoh had done in Exodus 5, verse number 2? In the days of the long ago, the Pharaoh, remember, he exalted himself, and it was the God of heaven that rained ten majestic plagues upon he and upon the Egyptians, and ultimately it was he who encouraged God's people to leave. When God through Moses had said, Let my people go, it was the Pharaoh who said no. It was the Pharaoh who first agreed and then changed his mind. But it was this Pharaoh who did not humbly submit to what the God of heaven had said. You'll notice another example in Isaiah 55, beginning in verse 6, but perhaps especially in verses 8 and 9. On that noble occasion, it was the prophet who said, Your ways are not my ways, and your thoughts are not my thoughts, saith the Lord. For my thoughts are higher than yours, even as the heavens are higher than the earth. Isn't it a bit foolish? and exceedingly brash to think that you and I could lift ourselves up and think on God's level, to in fact have His thoughts unless He's revealed them to us, to think that we can orchestrate and direct the affairs of humanity and time. We should be thankful that God rules in the kingdoms of men, Daniel 4.25. And it isn't us. It isn't President Obama. It isn't the President of the League of Nations. We should be thankful that it isn't the weaknesses and <clears throat> fallacies of men that rule in a way like that. Amazingly enough, you perhaps can see in James 4, beginning in verse 6, we notice on that occasion that it's God who resists the proud. 
the proud. Isn't it amazing that when those who lift themselves up in pride on an equal basis to God or think they can legislate for Him, that they are due to being brought down because God has said that that's what will happen. What then should be the reaction to those in our world who in one way or another strive to legislate in place of God? They may well say, well, I know that's what the Bible says, but I think something different. I think it doesn't matter how men worship as long as they're earnest and honest and sincere about it. I don't think you have to be baptized. I know that's what it says, but it just seems to me that God wouldn't require that. Countless thousands in our world believe either those exact ways or at least something like them concerning some matter that the Bible has revealed. And may we not ask, are they not lifting themselves up on an equal plane with God? God has stated what He wants. He has stated what He demands. It is the human family's business to dutifully and obediently do that which He has said. You'll notice that on this occasion, Nebuchadnezzar lived for seven years like an animal of the field because he wasn't wise enough to listen to God and do what God said. No wonder in Habakkuk 2.20 we read, The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. It's time for you and I, and it's time for the human family to just be quiet and listen to Him. Our business is not to assert what we prefer or what we think, but to merely in humility listen to Him. For those reasons, we do come to this third matter on that slide. We've noted so far that Nebuchadnezzar failed to acknowledge God as the source of his blessings. And furthermore, he exalted himself and elevated himself above that which was his rightful due and place. We do come finally to this. God can bring down. He can abase those who exalt themselves. That fact may seem opposed to the nature of God, but is it really? It is His desire and love that all would come to appreciate and know Him. And if He can accomplish that by bringing us to our knees in this life, it would be far better to do that now than to be brought to our knees on the day of judgment with no opportunity to make things right. God can bring down those who lift themselves up. In Luke 14, 11, Jesus in fact made that very teaching he spoke about those who, in fact, by way of parable, would come in to the various feasts and places. And if they by themselves would occupy a place of high honor, Jesus said, how shameful it is when a man of higher honor than you comes and then you have to be led to the back. Isn't that interesting? In that very context, Jesus said, God is able to abase those who exalt themselves. Today, how much and how sorely do we need humility? That is something that our world, quite frankly, seems to be moving away from. Our youngsters in school, they're patted on the back even when they fail and say, Oh, you did your best. You deserved it. We seem to have lost the place in our society of folks understanding what failure is about and living in light of that character of the human frame. Our God wants us in humility to understand that there is truth 
ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, John 8, 32. In light of that, consider with me the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar did learn. This was after he had lived seven years as an animal, when his understanding returned to him, when his appreciation of the nature of a human being returned to him. This is what he said. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, verse 37, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose works are truth and His ways judgment, and those that walk in pride He is able to abase. That came from the lips of Nebuchadnezzar himself. Did not he learn a valiant lesson? He is able to abase those that walk in pride. Thus, we need to help our children learn the value of proper humility. To understand that there can become great error when one in pride goes against the things of God and feels no conscience about it, as, though, as if they do not care. You notice in light of that in 1 Timothy 6 verse 17, we have even in the pages of the New Testament where Paul said, Charge them that are high-minded. Who? Those that are high-minded. That they are not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us all things to enjoy. You see, it can be so tempting to be high-minded, to lift myself up, to perhaps you lift yourself up, to think, I don't need God. I may come to a worship service and sit there for an hour or two a few times a week, but ultimately I can make it fine by myself. That kind of mentality got Nebuchadnezzar into seven years of great trouble. And it got him into a period of time when not only was he so low that he was not even an animal, but he ultimately in wisdom learned something about it. I would invite you to read the text again, verse 37. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, extol, and honor the King of heaven. He now realized that his blessings came from God. And he now did realize it was not his place to elevate himself. And he also came to knew well that it was God's works that were truth, and furthermore, that it was his ways that were judgment. Perhaps finally, in light of all of that, the Bible warns each of us about that kind of mentality. Take heed... Those that stand, lest you fall. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. And in that text of Proverbs 16, verse 18, A haughty spirit goeth before a fall, just as surely as pride goeth before destruction. If you and I strive to live like that, we are only asking for trouble from the heavy hand of the judgment of God to weigh upon us, to bring us to our knees and hopefully to cause us to come to our senses just like Nebuchadnezzar did. This very night, then, what might we say as we conclude this lesson? Perhaps in conclusion, we could state it like this. Nebuchadnezzar's second dream testifies, among other things, about the reality of what can happen to those who dwell as they exalt and elevate themselves. We specifically have noted how valuable how needful it is to acknowledge God as the source of our blessings and to never elevate ourselves above our station as a human being dutifully needful to be obedient unto Him. And finally, we've in addition seen that God can abase those who exalt themselves. As we've studied that lesson tonight, where does it answer in regard to your life and mine? 
to this point have you rebelled against the gospel call of invitation? Though you have heard the earnest plea of Jesus that you would come and be a faithful servant of His, at this point you've ignored it or you have open-handedly rejected it. If so, are you not in a parallel position in Nebuchadnezzar? God has blessed you so greatly and yet the God of heaven, you at this point are not glorifying. Why remain in that condition? Why remain in that place? Nebuchadnezzar came to his senses, but it took seven years of living like an animal to do it. Won't you be wiser than that? Why not address the God of heaven tonight in humility, repent of the sins in your life, believing Jesus as the Son of God, confess His great name as the Son of God, and be baptized humbly, submissively, obediently to what He is saying. If you've begun to live the Christian life, but at this point you're not faithful, Notice again that seven years came upon him. Why not make a wiser decision than that tonight and make things right in your life before the day of judgment comes upon you? If we could help you tonight by praying with you and for you or by assisting you in your initial obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ, may we each learn some great lessons from Nebuchadnezzar's other dream. And if we can help you tonight in your response publicly to the gospel, would you not let that be known if you would while together we stand and while we sing?